Let's pray together. Lord, our hearts hunger for you. Lord, you have filled us being the bread of life, and yet, Lord, we still desire more. We desire more of you, Lord. And I pray now, Lord, as we sit before you, may your spirit minister to us. May you help us, Lord, to understand your word. May you help us not just to understand it, but to take it in and to apply it. Because, Lord, you tell us in your word that your word is useful. It's useful as our lives are changed to equip us for good works. So, Lord, I pray that uh, this time in your word today will do just that. So lead us and guide us. May your spirit be our teacher. May you help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you remember this song, don't you? 1992 was the year. The newsboys sang it. Now, I'm not going to sing it as you know, but I'll give you the lyrics. And the song is called, I'm Not Ashamed. I'm not ashamed to let you know. I want this light in me to show. I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. What are we sneaking around for? Who are we trying to please? Shrugging off sin, apologizing like we're spreading some kind of disease. And I say, no way. No way. This one says it's a lost cause. Save your testimonies for church time. The other one states you better wait until you do a little market research. And I'm saying, no way. Well, here's the truth of the matter. To what or to whom we are loyal is what or who we will honor. It's a simple matter, really, of how much I value, how much weight I place on the thing or person I honor. I can say all day long in private that I'm a Christian, but if I'm embarrassed to wear the name in public, then what does that say about my loyalty to the Lord? How much do I really honor him? Am I ashamed of the name of Jesus? Well, I begin the message this way because we're going to deal with shameful things today, Scripture. Now, if you were an Israelite back in Moses' day listening to his sermons recorded in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 19, and that's where we're going today, you would rightly rise up in judgment of those committing these shameful things. And you would applaud the way Moses commands the people to handle those who commit such heinous acts. And I say heinous acts because not only are those who commit those acts shameful, more importantly, these things bring shame upon the community, upon the nation. These acts are shameful because they show a blatant disloyalty, not only to the Lord, but to the fellow Israelites. See, these acts are done not in secret, but publicly. It's not a private affair. But let me set up what we're going to encounter today by reminding us of what shame and honor are. Because back in the day, that was huge for them. And I would say even to us, for us today, shame and honor is huge. See, shame happens in our emotions when we realize that we cross a social or cultural or even a, a a divine boundary. The higher we value our social or cultural circle, the more shame we feel when we transgress. Now, on Tuesday night, I was in a virtual Facebook event with the Amblers. You know, they're back in the States, and some of you saw the Amblers on the screen as well. They reminded us of all who attended this event about some of the cultural taboos of the Muslim culture, which is they are they're a part of. They're missionaries too. Such things as showing the bottom of your shoe when sitting across from a Muslim, if you have your legs uh, kind of crossed or whatever. 
It's a very shameful thing because to them, it tells them, you consider me lower than your feet. It's a very huge insult to them. For us, it doesn't really matter, but for them, it's huge. Now, since Robbie and Christy highly value their Muslim friends, they would feel much shame if even one of them accidentally did that, showed a Muslim the bottom of their shoe, and especially when they were sharing the gospel, you know, with them. Now, the same is true in countries where there is a common bowl on the table during meals. Now, one thing you always, always, always do is you pick up the bread with the right hand, never the left. Why? Because the left hand is reserved for cleaning yourself in the bathroom. Well, I happen to be (laughs) left-handed. And I visited countries where this is the norm. And, And to my recollection, I don't remember ever breaking that taboo, which I'm glad of. And the shame would run deep if all would eat with their left hand in cultures like that. Well, today in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 19, found on page 185 in your pew Bible if you need that number, we're going to see four strange, shameful scenarios that Moses highlights as he teaches Torah. We're going to walk through them and catch the gist of what they are And with each of these scenarios, we're going to ask two questions. First, what in the world is this scenario about? And then second, why is it shameful? And then I want to give us the main idea why Moses put these scenarios here in the first place. And finally, I will have us go to the New Testament as I seek to give us an application for this. Now, these acts indeed are strange things. Now, they're strange to our ears, but they're not strange to Israel, to those who first heard uh, what Moses was talking about. We even had in our Bible study fellowship today, uh, we talked about those issues. See, as we know, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. And as we go through our passage, no doubt you're going to say something like, I'm sure glad that I don't have to directly apply these things to my life. But Paul says in Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And even though these scenarios have nothing to do with us directly, the truth and the application and the principles have great applications for us as God's people. We Gentiles who follow a Jewish Messiah. And so the first scenario is found in Deuteronomy 25. 5 to 10. So if you don't have your Bible open, please turn there. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull off his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. 
And the name of this house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Strange story, isn't it? Now, the learned people refer to this section as a Leverite marriage law. Now, if we're familiar of our Old Testament, especially Genesis, we see Leverite marriage in operation. Think Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. See, since Sarah was barren, as we know, Hagar sort of took her place to bear children for her. As we know, barrenness was considered the worst possible thing that could ever happen to a woman in Israel in those days. But God performed a miracle regarding Sarah. And how old was she when she bore Isaac? She was 90 years old. 90. And now, of course, the name Isaac means laughter. And I'm sure that she was inviting all her friends saying, hey, laugh with me because I've got Isaac. Amazing. And then Abraham was 100 years old. Who would have thunk it? But praise be to the Lord. He's the God of the impossible. And the Lord took the social reproach of Sarah away. She had to wait a while, but God is faithful, isn't he? So in the first scenario, we have the what? It's a Leverite marriage. But what is so shameful about this? So let's recap. Two families live in close proximity to each other. The heads of the households are literally brothers from the same mother. One brother dies, leaves no offspring, neither sons nor daughters. And now it is the living brother's job is to help raise up an heir for his deceased brother's line by marrying and consummating the marriage with his sister-in-law. Of course, we look at this and we say, weird, don't we? Once again, we must not see this, though, with 21st century American culture eyes. We must see this in the back in the day, Jewish eyes. And though it's weird to us, it was all important to them. So that's the setup. But here's a slight problem. Bubba doesn't want to participate. He refuses to marry his sister-in-law in order to consummate the marriage and continue his brother's lineage. So sister-in-law takes Bubba to the gate of the town where legal transactions are done, basically to the court. The elders publicly challenge him on his refusal to help raise up an heir for her. But Bubba holds firm to his decision. And with that, she removes his sandal and spits in his face. This is an extreme, a shameful gesture. And from that time on, Israel will describe this man as, there goes that unsandaled man. For the rest of his days, Bubba now has a social stigma attached to him. Bubba has a freedom, though, to accept or to reject his responsibility to produce an heir for his brother. Perhaps he thinks it's too much of a hassle to marry another woman along with his own wife, and then to raise a nephew besides. Or perhaps he wanted to gain an inheritance from her when she dies. See, according to Numbers chapter 27, he is next in line to receive the inheritance from her when she dies. Whatever the reason, Bubba says no to his responsibility. And since he has the freedom to say yay or nay, why is it shameful if he refuses? I mean, he's just practicing his freedom I mean, we're Americans. We love freedom. He's practicing his freedom to say no. Well, the shameful thing is, if sister-in-law dies with no kids, the lineage dies as well. And though he has the freedom to accept or refuse the duty, community peer pressure for him to do the right thing was intense in three ways. First, she took his sandal 
off his foot. She did this. The normal way of sealing major transactions like this was that the person offering to, to seal the deal took his own sandal off and gave it to the other person. In this case, she took it from him. It was a major diss. Number two, she spit in his face. Guys, how would it be if somebody, a woman, were to spit in your face? See, this was an extreme insult for everybody to see. The man had to stand there and take it from his relative, from his dead brother's widow. What should be an awesome privilege to keep his brother's lineage alive has now turned into a shameful thing by his brother's refusal to help raise up an heir for her. The number three, for the rest of his days, as the head of the home, he will carry the name of unsandled one, thereby bringing shame upon his family. Now, the stakes indeed here are very high, as you can imagine. One can exercise freedom, but the pressure to conform to the cultural norm is intense. Now, you tell me, would you stand your ground and refuse to do the right thing according to the rule ultimately ultimately laid down by Yahweh through Moses in spite of the community peer pressure to perform Leverite marriage? Obviously, this is not an everyday occurrence. This is a rare thing, and it's very unfortunate. But who better to comfort and provide for the widow than a close member of the family? The widow needed an heir. Yahweh's strong encouragement was to have her brother-in-law meet the needs and to produce an heir. The shameful thing was in the selfishness of a widow's brother-in-law, and he paid the price by experiencing great shame. Second scenario is a doozy. Verses 10 and 11. (laughs) When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draw near to rescue her husband from the hand of him who is beating him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the private parts, literally his shameful things, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. What do you do with that one? What can we say? The what of this extremely rare scenario is straightforward. The wife wants to help her husband win the fist fight. Text doesn't say what they're fighting about. This woman's husband, though, is getting pounded. She sees this. She wants to rescue. She wants to help out. But she decides to, quote, take matters into her own hands, so to speak, and then seizes his shameful things. She may have helped her husband to win the fight, but she now helps herself to the loss of her hand. The answer to the question, what is so shameful about this, ought to be obvious, right? According to just about everybody I consulted, even if they, even if they commented on this at all, because many refused to comment on this, there were two primary reasons for the harsh punishment, modesty and progeny prevention. Now, the idea behind the first reason is if a woman could be so bold as to do something like that, even in the heat of the moment, she stepped way beyond the bounds of modesty. It's appropriate for women in Israel. The idea behind the second reason in this shameful scenario is the wife's potential of harming future generations by her present actions, depending on the extent of the damage she did to the man. As we saw in the previous scenario, carrying on the lineage is absolutely imperative in Israel. One author put it this way, of the seriousness of the act, any action which might cause permanent harm to another family is shameful 
and she must pay the price. The third shameful scenario, let's move on, is that of a merchant in Israel stealing from his fellow Israelite. Let's read verses 13 to 16. You shall not have in your hand or in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in the house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. It's a pretty serious charge, isn't it? Like the previous scenario, this one is straightforward as to the what. One writer describes it like this. False weights and measures by which a merchant could exploit his customers are prohibited. When buying, a merchant could obtain more than he paid for by using a large weight or measure. And when selling, he could cheat the customer with a light weight or measure by providing less than the customer paid for. So the why question regarding this shameful act is straightforward as well. See, God calls the breaking of the eighth word, eighth commandment, you shall not steal. In this case, two kinds of measures style. It's an abomination. It's stealing. And it's wrong. And God says it's wicked. On the other hand, Moses also said that honest dealings regarding buying and selling proves to be a blessing. In verse 15, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. And I guess so, right? People getting ripped off tend to get just a little bit cranky. And with it, possible violence. So the lesson is clear. Don't steal from people and they won't be ticked off at you. Well, the fourth scenario has to do with an entire nation that shamed itself regarding continual military harassment against God's people. Let's look at 17 to 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now, this scenario is admittedly a little bit different than the other three. This one has to do with the Amalekites, the perpetual enemies of Israel. Israel was in the wilderness, minding their own business, trying to get from point A to point B, when the Amalekites attacked them. And not just once, but time and time again. The Lord commanded his people to exterminate them sometime after they crossed over to take possession of the promised land. And like the second scenario, where the wife's hand is to be removed from her body, the Amalekites were to be removed from the earth. This is a setup. Now let me give you two observations regarding this scenario. First, Moses simply reiterated what Yahweh swore he would do decades earlier to the Amalekites. With Moses and Aaron and her holding up Moses' hands on top of the mountain and Joshua and the troops on the ground battling against the Amalekites, the Lord overwhelmed Amalek. In Exodus 17, 14, are the words the Lord told Moses to write down. He said, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God was pretty angry at them. God swore he would completely destroy Amalek, and he would use his people to do so. Second, Amalek eventually 
settled in a certain place within the boundaries of the promised land. And what did God say to, to Israel concerning all those in the promised land? Exterminate them, every last person, boy, girl, man, woman, even the animals. They live within that land. And God says, take them out, exterminate them. And regarding this scenario, one author commented that Yahweh commanded Israel here to remember to take care of unfinished business. But it wasn't until hundreds of years later that it actually happened. Under the leadership of Hezekiah, the Amalekites finally were destroyed. And so let me offer uh, some truth regarding the Amalekites' shameful acts. Number one, God will vindicate his people. People who are God's enemies or, or our enemies, God will vindicate himself upon them. The warfare is real. Physical and spiritual enemies, that happened in Moses' day. But in our day, the warfare is real as well. But where are our, where is our firepower be directed toward? Not so much people, but where? It's in the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When you pray, you pray against those spiritual forces. You pray against the, the, the invisible forces, the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. They're our enemy. I also want to point out a warning as well. God's people are to remember and never forget that the warfare is real and constant. The moment God's people begin to compromise with evil is the moment their loyalty to the Lord begins to diminish. They start to dishonor Yahweh in little things at the beginning, but then it gets more and more gradual, more blatant as it goes on. And that results in an experience of shame, not only with them on a personal level, but in varying degrees in the community and in our day in the church. Think about what's happening now and the compromise so many churches and even denominations have with evil. So let me wrap up this part of the message before we turn to a New Testament application, I believe. So what's the bottom line here? It's honor and shame. These weird scenarios tell us much about regarding the Lord's view of what ultimately destroys a sense of community and unity among his people. When God's people dishonor the Lord and they're free to go beyond the boundaries of what he says that gives him honor, this contributes to shame among his people. However, when God's people individually commit themselves to loyally following Yahweh and as a result to live in faithfulness to one another, this serves to bind the people together in unity and in oneness. The shame decreases. And the degree that all Israel lives this way is the degree of unity among them. And the degree Israel then gives an effective witness to the pagans. See how it works? We loyally follow the Lord. We faithfully live together. And that gives an effective witness to the pagans. Where we're giving maximum honor to the Lord and experiencing a minimum amount of shame and effectively setting a unified witness before the watching world. This is what God is after. And so how can we apply what we just heard today to our lives as Grace United? How can we apply as new covenant followers of Yahweh in the flesh, the Lord Jesus? Romans chapter 6, I believe, gives a really good truth here in our application. And so I'd like for you to turn with me here in Romans 6 either manuscript or in your scripture, either way. 
And after Paul lays out our need for the gospel, for us to respond to the gospel of Christ in the first five chapters, he now begins to unpack what the gospel means in our lives. So I'm going to quickly walk through this very power-packed, practical chapter. Obviously, we won't have time to cover everything. That would take weeks. And I'd be okay with that, but I'm not sure about you guys. But let me hit some highlights as we seek to give maximum honor to the Lord, to minimize our experience of shame, and effectively set a unified witness to the world as a result. So read with me Romans 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No way. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A most powerful truth about our lives as followers of Christ. Wouldn't you agree? Paul begins this chapter by making one of the most honorable statements that he can make regarding our condition. We died to sin. That means we're separated from it. That's what death means. It's a separation. Our old life is passed away. We are right now living a new life, the new life the Lord empowers us to live. Now, we may not feel any different at all. Sometimes we wake up a little bit under the weather. Sometimes we wake up sick. Sometimes we don't feel like doing anything. But if we're followers of Christ, we are living a brand new life. We're now in the realm of life. But when it comes to our relationship with the Lord, now everything has changed, hasn't it? Even though not much has changed in our physical world, as we can see, everything in our relationship with the Lord has changed. We have the capability to continually give him honor regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how we feel. Now, verses 5 to 10, allow me to summarize these. Paul says here that we are united with Christ. And spiritually speaking, when Christ died 2,000 years ago, guess who else died? We did. It's another way of saying that our old ways of living are no more. Paul continues, when Christ rose again from the dead, guess what happened to us? We rose again too. We now live a new life, giving the Lord honor and gratitude for who he is and for what he's done for us. And so verses 11 and 14, let's read these together and see some amazing practical things about our new life that Christ has given us. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. I'll give a few pointers here that we might learn how to maximize the honor that we can give to our king. First, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Now, what does this mean? That means simply we remember who we are. God raised us from spiritual death and gave us spiritual life. 
We have a whole new way of living now. Jesus is the one whom we are to live for now. It's him and him alone. To honor him is the most important thing in our lives. It's just as if Jesus were physically standing right next to us. Now, to visualize this, if Jesus actually was standing and sitting right next to you, and you were right next to him, how would things change in the way that you talk? In the things that you in the things that you think about, in the things that you, the places that you go. I'm not saying this is like sort of a you better watch it because he's there gonna attack you type thing. But what a privilege it would be if Jesus were right there next to you, wouldn't it be? And by the way, Jesus' purpose for sending the Holy Spirit was that very reason his presence might be with us. See, John 14, 16 through 18, Jesus gives us an amazing statement. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now get this next statement. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Who's he sending? The Holy Spirit. But now what's he saying? I will come to you. The presence of Jesus is the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is what the Lord tells us. Jesus is here. Jesus is with you and with me. Second thing I want to point out is that we recognize the reality of our lives. We have desires, don't we? These sinful desires that we kind of punch down and try to get rid of. We have those desires. But by the power of the Spirit, we do not obey those desires. Because we notice things doesn't mean that we've sinned. Doesn't mean that we have yielded. The issue is one of yielding. And with the Spirit in our lives, we can say no to these passions, say no to these things with emphasis. We don't have to obey them. Somebody cuts me off as I'm driving. And all of a sudden, things flood my mind. Words, gestures I may want to do, perhaps. Now, I definitely notice these things, don't you? But because I live a new life, I refuse to act them out. I'm not letting sin reign in my mortal body to obey its passions. Rather, I treat my time on the road as if I was in a spiritual gym, working on my attitude and my approach to the drivers around me. I pray for them instead of, saying things about them, even as I shout that in behind my, my windshield. I praise the Lord for the salvation and power he has given me to honor him even in my intense times behind the wheel. Third practical pointer I want to point out is I can actually, and you can too, present the members of my body, of your body, as instruments of righteousness to the Lord. Because I'm a disciple of Jesus, because Jesus lives in me in the person of the Holy Spirit, I literally and formally am to present every part of myself to him. In fact, I did that today. And it goes kind of like this. Lord, I commit my eyes to you that I may see only what you would have me to see. I commit my tongue to you that I would say words that would help others and not tear them down. Lord, I commit my feet to you that I would only go places that would honor you. And I continue to do this until every part of my body is given over to him in commitment so that I can give honor to the Lord with all that I have and all that I am. 
Now, due to lack of time, let's skip down to verses 20 to 22. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now, what? Ashamed. For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. In a word, remember from where you came. You used to live as wild and free, dishonoring the Lord and experiencing great shame. Now, some of us in our BC days, you know what that is, before we became a Christian, some of us were wracked in shame because we were sold out to wickedness. For others, maybe not so much sold out, but we were still there. But for all of us, we all lived under the wrath of God. But Paul said, we were free in regards to righteousness. We did not love the Lord, nor his people, nor his ways. We cannot care less about how to honor the Lord in our BC days. Can I get a witness on that? But now, everything has changed. We were slaves of sin, and now we've been set free from it. Before, we were condemned, and now we're forgiven, and we really can't honor the Lord by the way that we live. The fruit we get leads to sanctification. In other words, to give the Lord great honor, and its goal, its end, is eternal life. What a wonderful way to live, amen? Because what Christ has done, we can now live in a way that brings the king great honor. We no longer live shameful ways. We've renounced them. We are a new people. We rejoice in the new life that God has given us. But this is true, isn't it? Isn't it true? And now to the degree that we as spiritual brothers and sisters all live this way is the degree that grace united can be brought to oneness. It's just the way the king wants it. But to the degree that we don't live this way, the degree of disunity is present among us. Shameful things arise in our fellowship, shameful ways, dishonoring to the king. Now, in your bulletin, I put together a list, not exhaustive list, and, and some of you will be familiar to you. It's called the one another's of Scripture. And so you might you want to pull that out now or just wait till later. And these are things that the Lord calls us to practice with one another that we might honor him. Let's take them to heart and practice them, remembering that this is the most excellent way of how we can live loyally to one another in the presence of the king. And as we do so, what do we do? We set an effective witness before the watching world. Now, on that list, there's a number of times, you know, I've kind of, a, I've not included the duplicates, like how many times does the Lord tell us in his word through the apostles and through Jesus himself, to love one another. Many, many times. I just put a couple of those things down. But we honor each other. We pray for each other. We don't envy one another. We don't bash one another. We support one another. And on and on it goes. So now we come full circle. Hear the lyrics of the Newsboys song, I'm Not Ashamed, again, for the first time. I'm not ashamed to let you know I want this light in me to show. I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. What are we sneaking around for? Who are we trying to please? Shrugging off sin, apologizing like we're spreading some kind of disease. 
And I say, no way. This one says it's a lost cause. Save your testimonies for church time. The other one state you better wait until you do a little market research. And I say, no way. I'm not ashamed to let you know. I want this slide of me to show. I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. What about you? Let's live to give maximum honor to the Lord. Let's live to experience a minimum amount of shame. And let's effectively set a unified witness before the watching world. And this is what God is after. Let's pray. Lord, today, we saw shameful things. Things that were weird to us, but shameful nonetheless. Lord, our desire is that we do not live shameful ways to renounce all those things. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, for giving your life as a sacrifice, for sending the Holy Spirit to us, who is your presence in our lives, for all of us who know you, and even more importantly, for those of us who you know. Lord, your desire for us is that we would live ways that are honorable, before the watching world, that we would live ways, most importantly, that are honorable before you, and that we would live in loyalty to you and live in fellowship, true fellowship with one another. I pray, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, that you would empower us to live these ways. Lord, that, that the things that really are, are trying to grab hold of us temptation-wise, that, that these things would not even be interesting, interesting to us any longer. Lord, that our tastes for righteousness, our taste for holiness would change and it would be very distasteful for us to practice sin. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would protect us. Lord, we are so frail and we need your strength. And so Lord, I pray that you would enable us to follow you all the rest of the days of our lives. And we're asking God that you bind us together in unity so that the world may know, Lord Jesus, because that's what you said. If we're unified, then the world may know that you had come and you would come to save them too. So Lord, as we, as we serve one another, it really is a, a witness to the watching world as well. Help us to keep that in mind. And now I pray, Father, that as we uh, do two more acts of, of worship, I pray that these acts would be acceptable in your sight. As we give, as we sing, help us, Lord, to do these things because we love you, because you loved us first. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name.